Psalm 103, starting in verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant. Remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, ye mighty ones who do his work, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You may be seated. You know, when we completed the book of Acts, I was wondering where to go with the next messages. I was praying, contemplating. Because we saw the struggle of the early church. Struggles from within the church, struggles from without. We saw the same thing when Jesus walked the earth. Struggles within, the church had become apostate. Struggles from without, the Roman government. So we started seeing a pattern, so we, we moved and we started to look at the life of John Calvin, part of the Reformation. And there again, we see the same thing. Satan has always had his minions prepared and equipped to go against the church. Many times those minions are within the church. And many times from without. We see a pattern that the Christian life is a continual battle and struggle. We looked at the Geneva Church. Could have looked a lot deeper. But we understood through the messages, the imperfections of even the reformers, the men who were used by God to advance his kingdom to advance his church to a more perfect understanding of God's knowledge. But it was a struggle. They had governments against them, church leaders against them. A continual battle for truth, but they were honing out that truth. God was using imperfect men to get more of a perfect truth. And here on earth, we will never have absolute understanding of our God because we have a sin nature. But we see more and more maturity in the church as we go through history and striving for that truth. Trials and blessings. 
we here lived in a time of blessing in America because what our forefathers had given us. But we see that blessing being removed from our nation. All you have to do is look at the news and what's going on. In all of history, through God's kingdom, you have trials and blessings. But God used his word in the hands of the people to advance his kingdom. That's what these reformers did. And they left us their writings, their creeds, their catechism, their studies. Studies of the scripture that we use even today to advance and to mature our Christian walk. It's God's plan for sanctification of the whole earth. Kelvin taught many students, sometimes a thousand a day at the university, would come and listen to his lectures. One of those students was John Knox. He was part of the opposition. He was a Roman Catholic priest. And at the age of about 40, he started reading about the true words of Scripture through the Reformers and their writings. And God converted his soul at about 40 years old. And that would change his life forever. But he, like Calvin, he did not feel like he was called to be a minister. He wasn't as properly educated as many men. He was a priest, but more or less a clerk. But they had him preach. Some elders had him preach. And after he preached his horror, they said, you are now our new minister of the word. And he fled the church. Terrified. But also he went back understanding the multitude of counselors there is great wisdom. And he would step up to the plate if other men saw more in him than he saw in himself. But his heart was always for the Scottish people where he was from. They were under the heavy hand, the heavy yoke of the Roman Catholic Church. At that time, the church took in 18 times more funds than the government did in Scotland. The priests and the bishops lived in open sin. The bishop at St. Andrews kept concubines open for all to see, had 10 children through these concubines, Preaching the air of God and living like they're from the devil. The Scottish people saw it, but they were under the heavy yoke of the Roman Catholics. Many of them were kept at the poverty level. Well, the church leaders and their political cronies lived a lavish life. But the wicked trajectory of Scotland was coming to an end. The fullness of sin was there, ready for judgment. 
You know, the false precepts of man, the false religions of man, always come to an end because they offer no future for people. We see it today. What are our young people taught? Oh, the world is going to be disintegrated from global warming. There's no future for us. No resources. God says he has a future and a hope for us. And these world governments always lead to tyranny and bitter fruits. Surely we see it today. John Knox, he did go to Scotland. He went as a bodyguard for a couple of his mentors, Patrick Hamilton and George Wishart. And times, at this time, Knox carried one of them big two-edged Irish swords. So arming yourself to go to church or be part of a church is normal. Peter had a sword. At Calvin's times, many of these people were all armed. It's part of a realization that we live in a wicked, fallen world and there is danger around The people were being prepped by the influence from the Lutheran Reformation and the Reformation in Geneva. Pamphlets, articles, the books on the Institute were being sent to Scotland through the hands of the merchants. The printing press, again, was a mighty tool given to us from God to advance his kingdom. There was great danger of anybody going against the church in Scotland, the established church, the Roman Catholics. Remember, this was a time of death if you were going against the established church. They burned like 900 at the stake. Many others were killed by the sword. If you were caught with pamphlets or material, you could be arrested, your property seized, your life's work gone. And Knox saw his friends, his mentors, both Wishart and Hamilton, were captured and burned at the stake. at the hands of the bishop of St. Andrew's, St. Andrew's Castle, St. Andrew's Church. Wicked, wicked man. Eventually, Knox was captured for his part in the Reformation, and he served 19 months on a French galley as an oarsman. Malnutrition, poor treatment, damaged his health for the rest of his life. But for some reason, God had him released, and when I 
studying on this, there's a few ideas why he was released, but for the most part, it seems nobody knows why he was released, but we do. It was because of God, and God had a plan for him to do yet. His work was not yet done. So he returned to Geneva, where he was educated by Calvin. And it was said of him that he was more Calvinistic than Calvin. He grasped that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. No separation. God reigns in all realms of life. From there he went to be the minister in a Frankfurt church for the English exiles who were being forced out in the French exiles. However, he still was a little immature, he was bold, but it was his way or the highway for the most part. And the English, they liked using the Book of Common Prayer for their liturgy. Knox didn't like it. Tensions rose, so he wrote to Calvin to get advice. By this time, John Calvin had become more mellow, more of a peacemaker. Not that he ever gave up on what was righteous, but he wrote him back and said, you know, for people who gave up so much, gave up their homes for their faith, traveled to a different country, why should we burden them by taking away their own liturgy? He said, it's not that big a deal. These are faithful men and women. But John Knox didn't listen. Tension rose. Rifts rose. And finally, he was booted out by the rulers of Frankfurt. You have to remember at this time, there was such a union between the political and the church. For the most part, the ministers were paid for by the political people of the time, by the government. But also the governments represented the church. But they could pull the pin and boot you out also, and that's what they did. Back to Geneva, and he ministered a church there. He said Geneva was the most perfect school of Christ. And his dream was to make a country the most perfect country of Christ, Scotland. He wanted to duplicate what Calvin did in Geneva, but he wanted all of Scotland to follow that lead. When when Knox did return to Scotland, he came to a nation that was ready for change. These written truths of the scriptures had so infiltrated into the people's hands, they were ripe, they were ready for change. They were becoming emboldened. They saw the sins of the ruling Catholic. They felt the heavy yoke. And when he came, he ignited the spark. The kindling was piled up. His preaching was the spark. And the people threw off the Roman Catholic religion. Not in such a peaceful way. 
Churches were sacked. Icons burned. Bishops and priests kicked out of the country. The bishop of St. Andrews, who had so many people burned at the stake, somebody knocked him off. He never even made it out of the country. And we may think, how could they do that? How could people act that way? Well, let's look at the waters they were swimming in. How would you act if your children or your mother or grandmother or uncle or aunt were burned at the stake? How would you feel if you lost your farm because you were passing around a book of the Institutes? And your whole family cast in the street. People killed constantly all around you for their faith. Would you act more harshly like some of these people? I probably would. Would you cry that this wicked bishop of St. Andrews was knocked off? I think I'd dance in the street. So water there is swimming in a different time. Your life could be snuffed out in a minute for your faith. So when they got the upper hand, yeah, they kicked these people out. And not in such a easy manner, I guess I'll say. I don't know if it was godly or not. You know, Mary, Queen of Scots, was in power through some of these times. And her, her nickname was Bloody Mary because of the many reformers she had killed. Technically, she was the Queen of England, but England and Scotland are an island country, and she ruled them both. They did not fear her. They did not fear the Roman Catholic Church. They persisted their assault against the false religion of the day did result in many lives being lost, many properties seized. But in the end, they did prevail. They formed the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. John Knox authored the Confession of Faith and the Book of Discipline. See, he was looking for the future. He did not want the church to fall back, and they knew they needed guidelines, catechisms, and that to instruct the people when him and the reformers passed on or passed the torch to the next generation. But Scotland did become a Calvinistic country, the first country. That looked at the whole of God's kingdom as his. God's church prevailed. Even through these great difficulties, again, the minions of Satan tried to even wipe out the existence of the reformers. But through difficulties and persistence of faithful men, not perfect men, faithful men, but persistence and faith, who strove through their own shortcomings 
to become leaders in establishing God's church. And also we see the importance of God's word getting into the hands of the people, the hands of the lost. You know, faith comes from hearing the gospel message, whether it is in the written or the oral form. The power is in the word of God, and it's enriched by the prayers of the saints. You know, we should never think it any little task when we support foreign missions or foreign people getting literature into the hands of the lost. It's setting the basement, the bedrock, the foundation for God working in the future in those countries when they have their word. You know, we see these are pretty much the works of John Calvin because he inspired John Knox who used him to change Scotland. But did it stick? Did the people stay faithful? You know, I didn't study the history between 1560 and 1800, but I'm sure like all other nations, there was falling away and coming back, falling away, coming back. When you study the history of man, you see that God blesses a people when they come to him. They become prosperous. They forget God. Get worldly. The nation declines. Morality declines. The nation falls apart. I've read two books, one by a Christian, one by a non-Christian on that. About 250 years is the lifespan of most nations. And then they decline, whether they're Christian or not, at their foundation. So I'm sure there was up and downs. However, the Christian roots were deep in Scotland. It was good soil. And it did result in revivals. In 1874, D.L. Moody went to England. Little success in a revival. He went to Scotland. Many souls were saved. Thousands. Thousands of souls through the different denominations in Scotland at that time. As a matter of fact, that is where Moody got his reputation as a great evangelist. It was in Scotland. But yeah, conflict within the churches. The Church of Scotland, the national church founded by Knox, was still alive. The Free Church of Scotland was formed in 1843 because they didn't like being tied to the political church like the Church of Scotland was. And another break from that, the Free Presbyterian Church broke off. Now you can say, well, why can't they get along? Why are these breakups among churches? Why is there tension? It's men who stand up for God's word, trying to hone things and further God's truths. 
Sometimes parts of churches will stray away. They need to be reeled back in. They need those men and women to stand up and say, no, we cannot tolerate this. There will always be tension within the church. Get used to it. There is no perfect church. There's no perfect men. There are godly men and women who are persistent in seeking that ultimate truth. But a lot of these, they regrouped. By 1929, it was the Church of Scotland and the Free Church, or the We Church, they called it, because there weren't many of them. But they were both still strong in the Word and faithful. The tension among them kept bringing them back to the truth, closer to absolute truth. We do know the Word was prominent in these churches. The scriptures were taught in the schools. The catechisms were taught in the schools. Imagine that. Church government, family government, and state government all being ministers of God. Can you imagine that? What a horror to the liberals today. That's exactly what we're taught through the scriptures. Government is a minister of God, just as the churches and our family governments were all under God. But that bathing in God's truth, that they would not compromise away, is what a blessing it was for their children and their children's children, as it tells us in the psalm. Because the foundation kept being laid, and there was revival after revival. 1843, 1934, 1939, 1949, 1957. You may ask yourself, and I ask myself the same question, why am I going down this lane? Because after going through the book of Acts, I wondered, where should I go next? And my heart kept being burdened to look at history. Why am I looking at history? Because are we doing what is right here? You know, we live in a culture, and the churches live in a culture of tolerance. Oh, we have to be tolerant. All the ministers in the church have to walk around like Mr. Rogers. Oh, we're so sweet and nice. Won't you all be my neighbor no matter what you do? And what has it gotten us? Furries and drag shows in our schools, libraries, even our churches? Is God's kingdom advancing? This covenant of tolerance has sucked for God's church. We keep giving up ground to sin. 
We must stand up against it and be men and women of battle. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So we're looking at history to see what worked in the past, what advanced God's kingdom, because we're doing it wrong. What will it be for our children and our children's children? Look at the pornographic stuff they're putting in the schools. But it's all for the reason of love. The love of sin. History is a tool to learn from. We must learn. We must get it right. So that being said, let's look. We're going to look at the revival on the island of Lewis. You may say, where is Lewis? Well, it's an island off of Scotland. It's part of an island called the Herbides. Off 40 miles off the northern shore of Scotland. These are cold, treeless islands. Constant wind from the sea blowing on them. Pretty miserable place to live, it sounds like. And some of the writers said that. It's a tough country. The Island of Lewis, with its attached sister island, Harris, had a population of about 25,000 at this time. In the 1700s, the churches were almost non-existent there, partially because they kept the Gaelic language. Illiteracy was rampant. Little biblical truths were available for the people. So the false local religions were starting to take hold, take root again. Remember, Christianity ran deep on the Scottish islands and in Scotland. That God in his faithfulness was bringing his word back to the people. In 1767, the New Testament was translated into Gaelic and the whole Bible in 1801. Christian organizations from the mainland the Society of the Propagation of Christian Knowledge brought reading into the schools and they used the catechism to teach English. Amazing. You know, when you look at our history, the New England primer was used. Look it up. For each letter of the alphabet, it's Bible verses. That was the book of the youth in our history when we were a more godly nation. A teacher from the Gaelic School Society taught reading using the Bible in homes. Going from home to home, night after night, the homes of the cottages were filled. And God used a young boy who learned to read. Somehow he got a hold of a Bible, a Gaelic Bible, which was rare. Became converted, and he went from home to home, door to door, village to village, 
preaching the Word of God and people were being saved through Him. Notice the importance of the written Word. The Word of God. Notice the importance of getting the Word of God worldwide. Again, I'll mention, anytime we support missionaries or anything around the world, it is no small thing. It's the Word of God going to people who need it. In 1820, the hearts of the people were prepped again. And a guy by the name of Finley Monroe came to the island and started preaching the true Word of God. And back then, they had a formal communion once a year. One day it was for preparation. Each person who was to receive communion would have to go before the elders to see if they were worthy. Then they'd have communion. Then they'd have a day of remembrance. It was a three-day celebration. In 1822, they had six people out of the 25 inhabitants of those islands feel worthy enough to take communion. Six. In 1828, 9,000 took communion. That's a revival. Over a third of the population That was the basis for later revivals that would come. The whole counsel of God was preached. There was no two-kingdom theology. There was no escape theology that we're going to be raptured up. It was the earth as the Lord's and the fullness therein. You're in a battle, fight it for Christ. It was pretty much the message. You know, the men and women who were saved in the 1939 revival, which was cut short because of World War II, were the catalyst for the 1949 revival. They saw the working of the Holy Spirit. They felt the working of the Holy Spirit. And they saw the church was slipping in attendance, The young people were not sincere in their faith, being led away with worldly attractions. But you know what? The root of Christianity had not been compromised from society. They didn't give ground to the wicked. They didn't let the politicians say the Bible does not belong in Schools. Where was the church when the scriptures were removed from the schools in our nation? Where were the men of God who should have stood up and fought it? The schools were diligent, the teachings of the scripture and the catechisms. Sunday was honored as a day of rest and of seeking godly endeavors. I'm going to read from Mary Peckham. 
to give an idea how it was at that time before the revival of 1949. You know, and she fought against the Holy Spirit during the time of the revival. She was saved in 1939. She actually moved away from the island. Didn't want to do anything with church. But she lost that battle of rejecting God for worldly passions because she had biblical roots planted in her, not only from her parents, but from society. Here's what she says. But we could not escape the influence of the scriptures. For successive, for successive ri- rev- revivals, boy, almost done, so... <laughs> beginning with the great revival in the 1820s, had brought the scriptures into prominence in the schools. There the children were taught to honor the word of God and to memorize many psalms, as well as whole chapters of scripture, both in English and Gaelic. They were taught and tested by the ministers of the islands to see if they had the basics of religion and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. At that time, family worship was held both morning and evening in each home, whether the people knew the Lord or not. The Bible was brought out and read, and someone prayed. The island was religious, and the people knew theology. They drank it in with their mother's milk. Children were nurtured in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Sunday was respected as the Lord's Day, and no secular activities took place. In our home, my unsaved father would conduct family worship each night. The Bible had a special place in the home and was revered as the word of God. Now, how how could a father who's unsaved preach the word of God? He was taught the word of God. He had the knowledge of God. But he also understood that he wasn't a child of God through the examination of the elders, through the examination of himself. There was no easy conversion. There was no, oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, you're saved. He lives in your heart. There wasn't any of that. When you were converted, you knew you knew it. But the public realm so respected the word of God that even the unbelieving fathers would teach their children the scriptures. I hope every liberal online listens to this service. We'll continue next time further into diving into what brought about the revival. But I'm saying I've been watching this revival going on in Kentucky. And I'm seeing a lot of similarities that happen in these revivals here. Where prayer goes on all night, day in and day out. People weeping and crying out for God for salvation. 
I think all of us, we have to be in constant prayer that that revival, I pray that it spreads here. Let us pray. The Lord and our God, the truth is in your word. The power is in your word. Let us be the distributors of your word, Lord. Let us overcome our own shortcomings, but let us never let our shortcomings hinder our persistence in serving you, Lord. Let us man up for the task for our children and our children's sake that we leave them a country that is far better off serving you than left in the hand of tyrants. You truly are a great God. I pray for revival here and now in each person's heart, in each family. And I pray, O Lord, that this nation once again honors you in Jesus' name.